and welcome to the Nomcast, the Netflix original movie podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Morgan. You can follow the show at NomcastPod on Twitter and Instagram, or you can follow me at Jokes on Drew. For this episode, I am lucky to be joined by podcaster, content creator, and return guest, Colby Mack from Colby Told Me and Minorities Report Film Podcast. Colby is here to help me review the latest from Academy Award-winning writer-director Spike Lee, the adventurous war drama Defy Bloods, a film centered around four African-American vets who battle the forces of man and nature when they return to Vietnam, seeking the remains of their fallen squad leader and the gold fortune he helped them hide. We discuss what a movie like this means to film fans right now, what it means to the black community right now, what its chances are for award season, and of course, a broader look at the career of the legendary Spike Lee. Plus, of course, a full review of the film that has some spoilers, but not right away, so stick around for a spell, even if you haven't seen it. And then, of course, come back when you have. You won't want to miss out on this great chat that I have with Colby Mack. I encourage you to check out everything Colby has to offer on his website, colbytoldme.com, and subscribe to Colby Told Me and Minorities Report Film on your favorite podcatcher. While you're there, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, The Nomcast. It would really help us out. All right, let's get right to it. Here it is, Defy Bloods with friend of the pod, Colby Mack. Give a listen. On the line, you may remember him from our review episode for Uncorked, or you should know him from his own great podcast, Colby Told Me and Minorities Report Film, and I'm probably forgetting a million other podcasts. This man never stops working. Uh, It's friend of the show from Atlanta, GA, Mr. Colby Mack. How are you, sir? Yo, 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 what up? It's your boy, Kobe Mack, and thank you for having me back on the Nomcast. Ah, man, as always. I mean, like, dude, uh, we had such a good time with the Uncorked one. Had to have you back. Uh, Glad we can make this work, uh, even though we're in very different times from when we last spoke. We were talking off air about that, uh, how how many things uh, could possibly change in between. We didn't even get to murder hornets. We'll get to murder hornets next time. So, but obviously, uh, you know, society life is, you know, coming to a a crazy time. Uh, And right now, uh, some people are calling this an extremely uh, timely movie uh, uh, in Spike Lee's Defy Bloods. Uh, I know because I'm a stalker of you and everything you do uh, that you've obviously put some of your thoughts online. So this should be an interesting conversation uh, as far as that goes. But I wanted to, before we get into the movie, I kind of wanted to take your temperature on a couple of things. First of all, what is your relationship to Spike Lee films? Like, have you visited any of his previous films recently uh knowing that this was going to come about i mean like film twitter and critics uh all around the country have been waiting for a movie we can kind of sink our teeth into on top of you know spike lee is now in his i believe early to mid 60s has a long career uh and a lot of people are revisiting what is your relationship and and where do you stand uh right now with his his work well i'll say this right now yo clap it up for being black being in vogue right (laughs) black is the new black right now um if there's any silver lining that can be taken away from the civil unrest uh in this country is that 
And yo, shout out to Netflix for their Black Lives Matter collection. Uh, they are definitely putting people on um, to not just films about the black experience, but just a lot of different experiences, um, which I think is like sure. pretty dope. And like the algorithm is like overworking right now because like literally there's so <laughs> many, there's like random stuff that I'm watching that should have nothing to do with it. And it's like, yep. hey, you should watch Moonlight. Hey, you should watch this. And I'm like, All right, I got it. And it's crazy because I'm using one of my Airbnb guests Netflix account. <laughs> like, I know for a fact that this isn't what they were watching, but all right. <laughs> nice. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, one, you being black, it's kind of hard to not have like a fondness for Spike Lee and because his, his his films have been a part of my life since I was a kid. I think the first Spike Lee film that I ever watched was Jungle Fever. Mm. Um, early 90s, Wesley Snipes, can't remember the name of the young lady, but all I know is that striking image of the movie poster with the blackest hand I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. you, know, you, know, you know, linked up with this white hand. And I just remember, obviously not the movie in full, because I watched it at such a younger age, right? Like, I would always, like, sneak and, like, watch movies underneath my parents' bed. Right. And, um... And I was like, I have no idea what's going on, but I was like, this is my first introduction to sex, right? Romance <laughs> yep. and everything like that. And I was like, it just looks cool. But like, I think I've probably seen 75% of Spike's films. Okay. Now, for some folks, you'll be like, wait, how can you only have seen 75? Keep in mind, this man has 93 credits on his IMDb. So he, many. I think people really don't understand how much work that he's done. And there's a lot of his content because of how he chooses to play ball. Yes. Or not play ball that people just kind of tune out and they wait for like the the stuff that's hard to like right now you cannot have not watched defy bloods unless you made up your mind that like, yo spike's filmmaking style isn't for me it doesn't do me any service to like my audience to like watch this right right and there's not too many people that are like that i did say that i, w I didn't make it a goal to like try to like you know let me watch some spike lee films beforehand but um i was invited to a podcast with my bestie and we watched bamboozled mm. a spike lee film that i completely missed i'm like why the, I don't, I barely remember this. Like, I right. remember the image of the poster, but I'm like, wait, Damon Wayans was in this movie? Yeah. Jada Pinkett Smith was in this? Most Deaf? Savion Govler? Tommy Davidson? Like, Michael Rappaport? When the fuck did this movie come out? And yeah. it came out 20 years ago. Yes, it did. And I saw it in it, the theaters just for, uh, uh, <laughs> I was working for the movie theater. It's a cheat For real? <laughs> yeah, Yo, yeah. It, it, it's nuts because <laughs> I, this tells you you know, why he continues to make the films that he does because that film 20 years ago is as important now as what the five bloods is in the time that we're in. It's nuts. Yeah. One of the, one of the best satires of the day. I'll say that. Oh my God. It is, it is intense. I, I'm, I'm breaking this movie down. I'm just like, holy sh And I've, you know, I've lived in Hollywood for a couple of years working with executives and stuff like that, you know, on backlogs and like, this is how they think. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I can completely see a man who's trying to get fired in just say, hey, let's create a new minstrel show, and they eat it up and like, let's do it. Yeah, right. And honestly, we're thinking like that could never work, except we hide. Like we we literally elected, quote unquote, a reality TV star to be the president of the United States. Yeah, that's a bureaucracy no, shit. It's bas <laughs> it's basically an update on either Hollywood Shuffle or uh, you know, like obviously the producers or things like yeah. that. It's like totally in that vein and. It does strike a chord, and I think it is aging better. Like I think it just got a Criterion oh, yeah. Collection version, um, but yeah, that totally went under the radar. There's so many so Spike much. films that didn't. But uh, to your point, because I'll let you uh, get back to it, but uh, one of the things that's kind of impressive, especially in modern day for Spike, is that 
he's been so flexible and ahead of the times in terms of like he's been on like almost every streaming service yeah. uh, that has gone through. He has uh, a relationship with Netflix with the She's Got to Have a TV show, uh, and I and from documentary side HBO. He's had you know when the levees break and Four yeah. Little Girls, and you know so he has a history there. Chirac is a, was an Amazon Prime exclusive, I believe. Mm-hmm. You know, so he's, he's definitely got some new thing on Apple TV Plus now. Yeah, he's everywhere. He's featured on there. He, he really is. That's such a unique thing of like how he, like, I don't want to say he's saturated, but like how he's well represented in all these different platforms, right? Um, yet was very much taboo to the Academy, right? Like, right. But, but he kind of felt like he got his vindication with Black Klansman, which is weird because it was so far into his career. Because a lot of people only know him as the do the right thing guy. And he's so much more than that. For sure. And I mean, to be fair... Uh, the the weirdest thing I think about the story of this film is that even after as hot as he could possibly be, right? I think he got the honorary Oscar not too long ago. Yep. Then gets the Black Klansman, uh, you know, achievement uh, with the Academy, feeling like he's a part of everything. And then this comes around, nobody wants to make it. Zero people wanted to make it, and Netflix was the only one who said yes. Yeah. And and this is where his career is: a man who's been putting out films for thirty years, and he, and with accomplishments. Uh, Black Klansman was even even if you want to say like, oh, well, it was just critically successful. No, it also made money. So yeah. so you're telling me <laughs> Spike Lee is so Teflon to you that you won't take his follow-up to his biggest hit probably since Inside Man, and you're going to tell me you don't want to do that. It's amazing to me. Yeah, it is, it is nuts. But like, I'm glad that Spike Lee is in what I like to call god director mode right like i mm. love anime and i watch a lot of dragon ball z like when goku went like you know ultra instinct or like you know became super saiyan guy like this is where spike is at i think he's entered that same level like what scorsese has been given and scorsese has been having a tough few years where he's got projects that are on his heart that he wants to be able to do i think his budget's demands are a little crazy oh yeah studios don't want to play with him like how they used to right yeah and he has had to go to un traditional means of like you know getting distribution um to yep. make his projects and i didn't know what i was getting into to fly bloods until i mean because granted with, with netflix you kind of don't know what you're getting until like two weeks out yep. <laughs> you know, you, you know yeah. what i mean but i love the campaign and it's come at a point where everybody is home right like so like all the eyes are on it right now and it's crazy you would think that this film was like just produced to kind of capitalize on the moment that we're in Right. This has always been the plan. I was prepared to be able to travel 50 to 75 miles to wherever, like, you know, theater I needed to to go watch (laughs) this on the big screen. Sure, yeah. My God, I I really wish that I could have. Um, I really hope that there's an opportunity to be able to do that at some point this year Um, because I will most certainly do that. This film warrants it. There's not a filmmaker that I'm aware of whose dream is to be able to make a film and have it play on a six inch smartphone or a 12 inch computer or even a 60 inch TV. Their dream is to get it up on 75 feet of film. Right. right. Like that's what their dream is. And that's how they that's how they gear, you know, that entire filmmaking process. But um, I like not trying to do too deep of a dive into like, what is this movie about? Because I want to just allow the marketing to kind of set up my expectation sure. and then allow me having the experience watching it to really win me over. 
Yeah. So have you actually revisited any of his work recently? Did anything, once you saw how the marketing was going, is there anything you wanted to personally revisit to kind of go, oh, it's kind of feeling like it might go in this direction. Let me revisit his style this way. Not particularly, only because I think that I've watched so much. I mean, you know, from his early days, with you know, um, uh, Devil in a Blue Dress, um, I mean, not Devil in a Blue Dress, uh, Mo Better Blues, uh, Malcolm X, uh, you know, um, uh, oh, goodness gracious. Uh, oh, I was I listened to this basketball podcast, and they were talk, They were doing, like, a retrospective on... Um, he Got Game? Yeah, on He, on he Got Game and with um, White Man Can't Jump. So it's like, the thing is, so many of those films... I can play the scenes kind of like, you know, like in the back of my head. So I know, like, I know all of Spike's isms, right? And I don't think that he's in a place where it's like, he's going to deviate much from that. And I'll say this, after watching The Five Bloods, he has, if anything, he's up the ante incorporating more of what he feels comfortable with and how he interprets his art. I hate, like, I will say the one lament that I've heard a lot of people say, you know, his film is messy like usual. It's not fucking messy, Okay. (laughs) <laughs> this is just how he chooses to tell a story. The right. fact that he incorporates so many different dimensions of media, like the right. archival footage where it feels like a documentary, the ballsiness to change up the aspect ratio in the, in the different ways that he does yeah. in this film. Like he has been like he has my, my full leash to do whatever he wants, and I'm with him. Like right. I, I'm, I'm down for the commentary. I'm down for the history lesson. I'm down for the playground that he's created for his actors to just play. Right. To some folks, it's like I feel like the scenes are running too long. To you, yeah, but sure. um, yeah. like he's not playing to anyone's convention or to anyone's standard. He has created his own standard. Yeah, and I I will say that about this film. If you know the history of Spike Lee's filmography and you know where he's taken. Uh, his stories and and what he likes to incorporate. I mean, Jesus Christ, you don't even have to go back that far. If you look at Black Klansman and put it <laughs> side by side with this film, you know it's the same person. Like oh, it's it's so easy, uh, you know. And something we were kind of talking about a little bit about the timeliness about it. I mean, you know, Black Klansman is an easy example to go. Wow, this was only a couple of years ago. And yet, you know, that one was right on the mark with having the Charlottesville footage in the film Mm -hmm. uh, to kind of update it. Uh, This film also, you know, The Five Bloods has, you know, it end caps with, you know, Black Lives Matter stuff. And you couldn't obviously be more timely with that if he tried. Uh, But he has a history of this. I mean, Do the Right Thing was released right on the same uh, around the same time as the Central Park Five. Uh, incident was coming out. Uh, the the fact that you had Twenty Fifth Hour come out like right after nine eleven, and it was yeah. like definitely that post nine eleven film that a lot of people point to about mm-hmm. that like demarcation of when things change and how things change. He's always been right there, and this yeah. one is no different. And I think uh, we were kind of talking about it uh, with uh, uh, Netflix at least uh, with Thirteenth. Thirteenth mm-hmm. is a documentary which I revisited recently. Uh, because of everything going on and man th- this movie has a lot of kind of the same footage between the stuff they put in the beginning uh the gi you know stuff the veterans of the uh you know vietnam war uh and and coming back to obviously the the civil rights era its height you know so there's so many things that this lands on and yet this movie wasn't even supposed to be his <laughs> this movie is a complete rewrite of a movie that was intended for Oliver Stone. Uh, 
So, I mean, yeah, the the original screenwriter uh, screenwriter duo, one of them's not even with us anymore. It's that uh, long ago now. This movie was, I believe, set up originally for 2013. And then in 2016, Oliver Stone finally released the project, said he's out. Spike Lee and uh, Kevin Wilmot. Yeah, Kevin Wilmot. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Who obviously were hot right after they wrote uh, Black Klansman and were so honored for that, that they decided this was going to be what they were going to pick up next, take it and kind of put it right into uh, the the particularly the black experience during Vietnam and the aftermath of how that shook out. And it's incredible that like he was able to adapt something and make it their own. So you're definitely seeing where something like this could have been something that maybe have been Oliver Stone, like that deep war movie that kind of, you know, kind of look an intense look on the, the aging of Vietnam vets going into now kind of a soldier of fortune story. You can absolutely see that from Oliver Stone. Oh, yeah. uh, but this is quintessential, uh, <laughs> black, uh, you know, uh, exactly the, like the black rights stuff, the black culture stuff that Spike Lee does so well. Uh, and obviously putting in old archive stuff that really hones in on what he wants to say. So something I always say about Spike in general, he always puts message first above mm-hmm. all. And so no matter if you think his style is messy or not, as you had said, you're never going to walk away not knowing what he wanted to tell you. (laughs) And I think for a lot of folks that can come across as like, well, that's not the way how it's supposed to be done. Because a lot of people say story should come first. Right. I can't criticize the way that somebody chooses to do their art. Like, I feel like his style is very distinct and it works for him and yeah. he's got fans of it. And I like, will never say like, well, you need to change. You need to be able to bend more towards convention. Nah. Cause we don't, we don't do that same thing for Wes Anderson films. No. Right. And like, like, I'm not going to say like, it's a black, white thing, you know, it's just, we've been, we have, I mean, we got to understand for decades, there has been a way to do things because that was way to do things by the folks who are in power that told us this is the way to do things, right? Sure. Um, so anything that breaks away from that, well, like, it's it's almost as if different is bad. No, different is different. Just because you don't like something doesn't make it bad. It makes it different, you know? Yeah. And then you could state your reasons as to why you don't like it or why you didn't work for you, but then at the same time say, hey, I can completely understand how it may work for someone else. Right. Um, so as I've been, like, you know, you know, ruminating on my thoughts and doing all these different podcasts and stuff like that, it's been interesting to hear everybody's different viewpoints. And also at the same time, it's got to be respective to what your lens is, right? Yeah. This is a film centered around four men, technically five, and essentially how they have dealt with a war that they wanted no part of. Right. A war that still rages on and everything that has to be involved with that. And that's yeah. tough, especially if you don't understand what it is to be black in America and what the plight of being black in America is. Sure. You know? um, and I can understand for some people who are watching this film, that's a lot to try to like deal with, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't think this film is trying to convict people of what I like to call white guilt. I really, really don't. I think this is like a lot of American guilt. I don't because, think like, so. Like, and, and I think that's very different than like what you got in Black Klansman, right? Yeah. I feel like here, this isn't, it's like, it's weird. It's, it's not trying to challenge the audience and say, hey, are you complicit in the role that you played in making black lives harder in this world? Right. Not with this film so much. I mean, ultimately... It's an ensemble piece, yeah. but there's one character who I feel like 
this is his main journey that we're along with. Right. And there's like another co-lead in my opinion. And then where we get the rest of the story, but there's still the ultimate message of, yo, America has done our vets dirty. Yep. And especially like our black vets where, <laughs> you know, I, I swear that the hello, black GI, that yeah. shit is striking. I, I, I yes. like, it stopped me in my tracks. I'm like, I don't know what to do, man. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're spot on. Like, like message is first. Yeah. And he always has it. And I think that's why he can be so timely because unfortunately the times made like the eras may pass by a lot of the things stay the same, unfortunately in the black community and in his purview. So you can easily go back and kind of go, well, especially, you know, black Klansman was a seventies movie. This yeah. movie is an update from the the late 60s to the present. So you could dial in on a lot of things where you go, this is where we are now and this is where it came from. And he's very good with that. And I mean, if anything, you could say do the right thing maybe more than anything was yeah. like timely, timely, because nobody knew really what Spike was capable of. I think that was his second or third film. Uh, yeah, so I really mean, early in his catalog, yeah. Yeah, I mean, she's got to have it. I think it was right that before was, that or whatever. Yeah, that was right and before it. so, it, you know, people weren't expecting that f- to fully come at a spike when it occurred, and then it coincided with a lot of things that were in uh, in the zeitgeist at the time in the culture yeah. that were going on. You know, Radio Rahim, but has still, you know, gone forward with you know what is happening now he's become almost like a symbol for what's going on now uh at least amongst you know film twitter people who are also into (laughs) the black lives matter (laughs) stuff so you know maybe not everybody but definitely in my circle so uh what do you think about that like uh, about his place in the culture and how how close he ends up being because of his subject matter yeah i mean i think that's that's something that makes him makes him an icon um he has had this uncanny ability that the topic of the conversation, his films are always centered on it. Yeah. And it's not like, it's not like it was reverse engineered. Right. Right. It's, it's like, it wasn't like, you know, here comes the conversation. Here is spikes response to it. And then by the time that we get it, it's like, it's kind of stale. Like the, the, the ballsiness to do Chirac, which was not welcomed by a lot of people. Right. Like Chirac yeah. was one of those things that was pretty much shunned. And he just has this penchant of doing that so often with his films. And I think that maybe speaks more to a society that is so resistant to change, even though we have people of good faith trying to provoke change. Trying right. To, like, create, if anything that we can get from any Spike Lee film is a dialogue that feels vital to have. Right. And we have it for a little bit and then it goes away. Yeah, and then we have to wait for another Spike Lee film to come up because, like, there's like I swear, if there's if, if we find out that there's some like Spike Lee, you know, uh, you know, cinematic universe that I'm like under <laughs> underweaving in all of this stuff because it just seems like how is this man always able to have this film and he's so consistent? Like, it's not like he'll be gone for like five, six, seven years because even if he's not doing a feature film, he's working on some type of documentary, some type of TV special, or I mean, back in the day, like doing a lot of music videos in the '90s and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, I mean. He did one of Michael Jackson's biggest music videos, and, and, and all I want to say is, "Why do they care about us?" Like, <laughs> yeah, we we forget that he's able to do so much of that, or like you know, um, or, or, or helping out on because wasn't he like a producer on, on on Love Basketball with Kobe? 
I believe so. I don't have you that know, in front. He, I he believe has so. His hands yeah. in so many different projects, and he's also trying to cultivate the next wave and generation of storytellers. You know, you know, underneath his production company and all of his other like great efforts. Like this man is like absolutely phenomenal. I don't understand. I don't know what Hollywood would be without him. Not because he's black, but just what he's been able to contribute to the industry and entertainment as a storyteller. Yeah, because I I can't compare him to really anyone uh, and his and his style i mean early on you can definitely see even in do the right thing like he's more influenced by like french new wave than he is mm-hmm. by anything american and what's funny is that you said the wes anderson comp they kind of come from the same school but just divergent in times and mm-hmm. what the, and what they're dealing with in terms of the themes of what they're dealing yeah. with but the styles, interestingly enough, if you put, and I'll probably never say this again, you can call me a complete <laughs> asshole, but stylistically, especially with the ensemble and trying to deal with like a community ver- and versus like saying it's a personal story, if you look at like Royal Tannenbaums or, you know, heck, even like Bottle Rocket or some of these like the early Wes Anderson films and yeah. put it side by side with Do the Right Thing, I'm not saying they're equal, but I'm just saying if you look at how they're presented, how the information's presented, it's interesting how they yeah. uh, they can paint a neighborhood, paint a community, paint a, a you know a family. The, those portraits kind of go with a lot of old French New Wave stuff from the previous generation to themselves. So, yeah. you know, stylistically, I know uh, you know subject matter wise, it's there, but like the the look mm-hmm. of it, you definitely can see it. Uh, yeah. But as for this movie, so you know. I, I, the marketing did work on me. I was very excited when I saw the trailer. Uh, Spike is back. Everybody got excited. Uh, he's bringing back a lot of people who have worked with him in the past. Uh, the early, if you were early on in terms of like what he was trying to pull off with the cast, he was trying to pull off. It's a little different from what ended up coming out uh, when he first got the project and, and transformed it into something of his own vision. Uh, they originally wanted. Samuel L. Jackson, Giancarlo Esposito, and uh, who was the th- oh, and Don Cheadle was supposed oh, to be. Damn, I know they. He went Woo. for he went way high. Uh, those were the people who were his first choice guys uh, to be part of the Five Bloods. Uh, and obviously, we have a little bit of a different picture here, uh, yeah. but definitely people who he's worked with many times before in some cases, especially with Delroy Lindo and Isaiah Whitlock. So you have some guys who definitely know Spike, know how to operate uh, in terms of the five bloods. And then you, the people he rounded out the roster with, He many of them, he you know, a couple of them he worked just recently with Black Klansman. Or Spike also has a very good eye for that next up and coming to put it like, like black superstar young black hollywood i mean you know john david washington you know gets his first real big yeah. meaty role out of black klansman and now i i gotta tell you i mean even though people you know who were really into film no last black man in san francisco but mm-hmm. you know jonathan majors uh this guy you know, is, uh, he's he, he is gonna be a phenom um i remember seeing him in white boy rick yeah that, that, and not that a lot of people did. <laughs> yeah, not a lot of people saw White Boy Rick in 2018, and like, I'm just like, who the hell is this guy? Where the hell did he come from? Yeah, like, I saw him in Hostels, which I believe came out the same oh, year. Oh wow, okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's like, 
damn, like he's so so good. Yeah, and um, like I, I think that he he definitely should have been you know nominated for a best supporting actor nomination last year with what he did in Last Batman of San Francisco. That that one man show that he puts on at the end of that film is like absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, um, yeah, th- this cast is is really really dope, and I I think the we one we do not get the opportunity to see this many black men on film at this age leading a film. Yes. Like we just don't. And I, 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 I like, I respect that. I commend it. And like the scene that everybody's praising, and I've been seeing it all over Twitter is seeing these four men, um, kind of like just shucking and jiving, you know, with apocalypse <laughs> now in the background, okay. and that Vietnamese bar. And it just like, it fuels you with joy. Cause we don't get a chance to see such a positive expression of like black joy on the big screen. It's and even point. though it's on the small screen, like I like that's all I'm thinking of, like watching this in Dolby somehow. Yeah, like, that's how like I would envision it. Just like, oh. <laughs> damn, like that just it gets uh, me hype, bro. Yeah, I, and trust me, I'm gonna get there, man. Like the, I think some of the best things that cook about this film are things that instantly I go, God damn it, why am I watching it in this way? Because. I mean, for how much he was recognized before, and he's a longtime collaborator with Spike, Terrence Blanchard, for the music that was not Marvin oh, Gaye, which we'll get that, to that in a second, but the movie, uh, the music, they, they teased it out. They actually sent it out. Yeah. Like IndieWire, I think, had it a few other places, uh, and it was available on YouTube before the movie came out. His themes for this movie were better than Black Klansmen, and it's, oh, I, I, and and he got recognized for that. So I hope that there's some way that he's going to get recognized. But I mean, the man's been around with Spike since Jungle Fever was the first yeah. movie that he did out like the whole composition. But he was helping mm-hmm. out since Do the Right Thing. So yeah, it's impressive. He's, he's good. I love the music. I'm kind of disheartened by so many folks that did not like. It's like they felt that the music came first before he watched the movie and then they just like overlaid it right that I, that's I, not their process I, I was complete yo I, I was completely invested into the way that this music was working over me like there's certain the way like the way that Terrence Pledger like there's these swells that happen and I'm just like and I, I remember feeling that way like, I think one of my favorite scores and it's so underrated is like the work that he did in Miracle at St. Anna yeah and he brings that up because, a lot yeah bro you don't like I was working in a movie theater that summer in college, and yeah. like I was, I've had to clean like that Miracle of Saint Anna showing probably like a hundred times over the summer. <laughs> uh-huh. like, bro, I'm gonna cry every time as I'm sweeping a popcorn because like there's just something that's so there's this very regalness that the score has, and it feels yes. so appropriate to like how it's like you know setting the scene, and like this feels patriotic in a lot of instances too. Yes. Because we have to understand this is a war movie. It, yeah, it's a war epic. Really seen, yeah. it, like it, we forget this is a war epic. I did not think that this is going to be an action war epic either. Yeah. Well, and and here's the deal. I mean, like Spike Lee has always said, first and foremost, his favorite movie of all time is The Treasure of Sierra Madre. And you can definitely see mm-hmm. a lot of the influence of that particular film on this. I also personally see it a little bit like kind of a, like a deer hunter a little bit too, has a lot of some of those aspects too. But you know, the music though definitely has that classic mix between uh, a typical war film, kind of the, the drum lines with it, the swells, the everything with that mixed in with some of the swells from just an action adventure film too, because essentially, you know, it's it's a treasure hunt uh, mm-hmm. on top of obviously all the other layers that 
Spike is going to put on there, too. That's the one thing, too. You can't really pin down what oh, this yeah. movie is. I mean, it, it's it's a journey. That's all you can really say. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you can't really pin down because depending on one minute to the next, you're going between, you know, found footage, archival footage stuff. You're going between, you know, like you said, the aspect ratios change, which, by the way, the other uh thing that really kills me is the cinematography is very good at times yeah. in this film that i would have loved to seen that's newton thomas sigel like he did usual suspects three kings drive which is a beautiful looking movie oh, yeah. like so this guy is no joke uh and you know some of those vistas some of the things when they did compress down into four three oh man some of that stuff was so good the sunset some of the look of the jungles and everything it's well captured and, and to be able to move from digital to film to super eight i'm just like what 16 yeah. million, like <laughs> yeah. what is going on here man yeah and i've heard some people say like it's it was distracting but like i don't know why i was so invested into this world that like it never took me out yeah yeah, I mean, the only things that took me out of this film, I guess if I want to be semi-critical because I've been pretty praising to this point, <laughs> is I will say I, I really don't buy into whether the script should be honored. And I only say that because some of the dialogue in this film is so stunted, trite, like kind of like heavy-handed uh, at times. Mm -hmm. I know Spike is never subtle, so I wasn't surprised at certain <laughs> scenes. And I will take, you know, some of these long. I, 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 Delroy Lindo must have been so happy to get like these big, meaty chunk, like these soliloquies coming out yeah. of that's, you know, they're putting on the page. But I'm talking about kind of the, the scenes in between where it kind of feels somewhat forced of just bringing up some of the themes and some of the things that they wanted to get across. There are some of those moments that make me knock this down from being like an elite, elite movie to just being mm -hmm. like a quality film. But outside of that, I mean, there's so much to like here. And, and Lindo, now that I brought him up, is getting praised across the board. And rightfully he so. and rightfully so. Because here's the thing. You brought up that Jungle Fever was the first Spike movie you saw. The first one I saw was Clockers. So I oh. love Delroy Lindo for, yeah. again, like, what, 25, 30 <laughs> years right now? So... I mean, that man is great. Even like uh, I, like the David Mamet film Heist, there's a lot of like mm -hmm. lower movies that not a lot of people saw that I really like Delroy Lindo in. Yeah. And I was very excited when I saw his name. I like Isaiah Whitlock, too, a lot. Uh, some of the other guys I didn't really know too mm -hmm. well. Uh, and I wonder, you know, like especially like Clark Peters. You know, outside of the wire, I didn't really know. I mean, he's him more too of much. a character actor. You know, yeah, smaller screen stuff. He's done some stuff on Broadway. I, I you know, uh, obviously um, he played Eddie in the film. Yeah, Norm Lewis. I, I, I didn't know him at all. So. I only know him as like. Uh, Carrie Washington's love interest in like the first couple of seasons of Scandal. Yeah, <laughs> that's all I had. Like, <laughs> like that is it. Are you telling and me I'm you like, didn't watch Sex in the City too, sir? I, I don't know. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I found it really impressive that these men in their late sixties. Yes. were able to do so much of the physical demands of what these roles asked for. Yeah, especially because, you know, this is not the Irishman, everybody. They did the work Ew. in the flashback. <laughs> they did the work in the present. And there's a lot of gunplay. There's a lot of, 
you know, like <laughs> talk about a bold choice. Cause I was not prepared for that at all. I don't know why in my mind, I knew for a fact that we were going to be flashing back and in the marketing, I never caught that these men weren't de-aged at all. No, like, that was not like that no. wasn't on any poster and how bold to switch up the aspect ratio. And then you think, because we get Chadwick Boseman and like, if we're doing the math in our head, we understand that one we're in like, it is, let's say it's 2019, 2020, that this film is set in present day. Right. And that, with where they were in their last tour was probably like early 70s, maybe like 72. Yeah, he mentions it. I think he says he goes in in 67, maybe, or something like that. And he Paul, left Paul 67 to 71. Times. Yeah, I think yeah, he was Paul, there 67 there to 71 times, right? or something like that. Yeah, so we have to kind of do that math in our head. Like, yo, this was 50, you know, 40, you know, 40 yeah. 50 years ago. Right? Yeah. And like, like obviously they would have been like no more than twenty one at the time. Like you know, sure, definitely yeah. very very young men, um, because they, you know they were drafted and whatnot. But the fact that we have a young a young looking Chad with Bozeman, because like that brother's almost fifty years old, and like I <laughs> he's, is he really, like, bro? He's like forty six. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. I, I had that man at like mid thirties tops. No, that I I know it it is absolutely crazy. I'm. I'm I, I want to make sure because I'm like I don't understand how long like his contract is to be, uh, to be Black Panther. Yeah, he was born in 1977. Oh, uh, oh, okay. So, so that makes him that makes 40, him 43. Yeah, 43. All right, I yeah. thought, was, but still, that, like it's still pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> still pretty good. You still know? pretty good. But then you yeah. but then you look at a man like Delroy Lindo who's like, like 66 or something like that. Maybe yeah, somewhere around there. Like six, somewhere around there. And the way he's moving in these flashback scenes. And then yeah. to, we and Spike just trust the audience to accept that we get and I, and I think there's something like that speaks to like a part of it like the war has never been over for them so right. when we go to their flashbacks they are in the place that they are now it's it's really weird I, I need to hear like how Spike explains it out sure. because for some folks that may have been jarring like wait why is old Delroy Lindo in the flashback right and. We see it in TV sometimes, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, when people do those type of flashbacks, but like I did take, I took it the way you took it, where it was yeah. like they never left, and that this is their kind of like recollection versus mm-hmm. you know that they could kind of transform and put them right back to where they were. But even still, with that said, uh, because if you look, so when they did the flashback footage, like most of the live action stuff, the gunfire, mm-hmm. the the actual stuff, they they had they looked exactly the same. But there's a shot at the end when Ooh. they're doing the recap stuff that they mm-hmm. do age the them photo. back a little bit. So the photo yeah. is like kind of de-aged a little bit. And mm-hmm. then the uh, they do like a group shot of them yep, side by side. And you can tell like Lindo's got the clean shaven. Fa- yeah. yeah. Isaiah Whitlock, same thing. Mm-hmm. Like, and they kind of, they put some stuff on his face. You could really tell. They like, did. It, they was, kinda, it, was, it was definitely, it was, it was a little peculiar, but like, I mean, maybe that's just the beauty of black skin, brother. You don't need to do too much. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, the fact that these men near near an age seventy were able to move around so much. I mean, we sure. asked we, we we asked Robert De Niro to curb stomp some dude outside of a restaurant and the Irishman. And yeah. It looked like the worst dinosaur reenactment ever. Yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was going to bring that up, like side by side with like Delroy Lindo, like flipping over and like ju- <laughs> jumping up at like a side of a hill and everything. And there's De Niro came and pull off that, but. Yeah. Yeah, but he's in his seventies. Things age. That's badly true. It, it is different. They're, they're yeah. probably like five, ten years apart. So yeah. it, 
It's different. Forgiveness for Bobby D. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think the cast was great. It would have been interesting to see like what that would have looked like with Samuel L. Jackson, with Don Man. Yeah, it's interesting, right? I mean, and but I do. I, one thing I got to say: Paul Walter Hauser and Jasper Packenden need, need. I hope they get an, a You're little. Back. I hope they get a little bit extra kick from Spike for being like their their white dopes. They're like the assholes in these films. Because mm-hmm. I was I I rewatched Black Landsman right before I watched this, and man, it's a hell of a time to watch them both. Kind of you oh know, especially gosh. Paul Walter Hauser. The yeah. man has to be a dope in everything, and it's. It's fun to watch. He pulls it uh, off. He does. I don't know what that says about him. I'd love to talk to him about it, but man, uh, he pulls it off and he does well. I mean, whether it was I Tanya, he did a very similar yep. thing, and then obviously these. But uh, yeah, and then Jasper Packenet like always has to be the dick. Like he yeah. always has to be a jerk. And this first line is such a dick like thing. <laughs> Awful. Yeah, he comes out just like. You know, arrogant American, ignorant fucks. Like, you know, it's like <laughs> Jesus. All right, calm down, man. Uh, oh my god! And then to me, the the definite, the interesting thing that we could talk about a little bit more because it's a little more meat on the bone is the Jean Renault uh, mm. character. Now, obviously, for anyone who knows, he, he's Des Rock in the film. Uh, he's you know Jean Renault. He's a longtime actor. Leon the Professional was one of the first early films that I was like, this is awesome. Uh, you know, Mission Impossible, Da Vinci Code, long career. He is obviously, even though he's French in the film, is definitely kind of a Trump stand-in uh, on some level. And clearly, when you see him at the end with the the Make America, the MAGA, the MAGA hat and the white suit. And that kind of posture, like the look that he mm-hmm. had, he's definitely kind of like, how did you feel about, A, how they treated the whole MAGA stuff, and then how Jean Renault kind of like fills in a gap in terms of the the villain here, I guess, if you want to say. You know, I'll be honest. The MAGA thing, was it executed the greatest? No. Only because I felt like that whatever that message was, it does move pretty quick because we don't center too much on like what Paul's relation. Like when I was like, okay, all right. So we're in this world. Like we're in a Trump world. Yeah. And then Paul, we're going to say is like the black guy that we kind of tangentially know. That's like at these Trump rallies. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. Trump. And I'm like, Oh, like that's Paul. And I did. Like, okay. I did a lot for that, that little cutaway. It was to funny. The rally, but also yeah. the group didn't stay too much on it. Like we quickly moved away from it. And sure. like, you know, we, we progress in the story and then we don't get, you know, him pulling out the MAGA hat till they arrive to the jungle. Right. Right. So I'm like, damn. And like, and the thing is, is that that prop has a lot of meaning to it. Right. Yes. Um, and I think it was it, it was entered to mainly set up having that as the prop for when that Vietnam police or whatever those those Vietnam bad guys. Yeah, come yeah. In, you know, like, and I, so I felt like that was the goal of it. I don't know that it added more to the story, and but I will say, seeing it on John Renault's head, it's very interesting that like that would be the thing that he want this dirty blood stained sweat thing. Yeah. He wants to be able to put it on, right? Like, yeah. So I knew for a fact that like logically to the world. It didn't make sense, except he want like Spike wanted to make sure that that was an image yeah. that he had, where like you know, like th- this is like the new. I don't want to say like Burning Cross, but like that's how. Yeah. It, that's kind of like how it is, you know. Like that, that's that's pretty much how it is, right? Like where that MAGA hat is like the stamp for this 
American, like, you know, refusal to be denied. Like, you know, we will make America great again. Like, sure. We want to be able to, like, be, like, well, it's, like that. It's and the South like, will rise again a little bit. Like, it's kind of a it, Confederate it really flag-ish is. type yes. of thing to it. Yeah. It, yeah. So, I mean, you know, but I, I think the John, like, if you did not know that there was going to be a double cross at the beginning of this film. Right. I don't, like, I will say, because Spike is very heavy-handed, there's a lot of things that I can see being set up. Right. But I was so invested into the world that it didn't take anything away from me. Like, oh, would I have liked this to be subtle? Yeah, but then that probably would have been a three-hour film. Yeah. And I'm quite sure that there's a three-and-a-half-hour film. I totally agree. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm very, very sure of You that. could tell by some um, of the cuts. You could tell. Oh, absolutely. And um, I, I think it's still the same editor that he's used before. Is that right? No, actually, it's a up? new editor to him. It's actually okay. the guy who cut Roma, weirdly enough. Mm. So uh, it's Adam Goh. Uh, I believe that's how it's pronounced. It's like Doe with a G in front. So apologies if I don't pronounce his name right. But uh, <laughs> yeah, he's new to Spike. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the editing was not like the strongest point of this film. No, I, I agree with that. You know, um, but then also like when you are so close to a property, it's hard to try to trim the fat, you know, because like, oh, it, yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't seem like fat to you. Like this is just everything that's been ruminating in your mind. This is the stuff that you want to be able to get that, you know, get out. Um, but I think John, like, I didn't expect him to be involved in like, you know, the third act, you know, you know, big battle scene. Sure. Like, Whoa. <laughs> that that kind of yeah. came out of nowhere. That, that really surprised me. I, I, I was not unsure. I was very unsure of how this film was going to end. Um, but I think mainly for me, it works. Like it, 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 it does work. Um, is it heavy handed? Yeah. But like, I think it, I think it plays. I, I personally thought it was actually some of the better stuff early on in the film. To me, I think this film is a tale of two two halves. I mean, me, it's the the line that I I see in this film, especially on second re, on the rewatch. To me, the movie starts to really cook post landmines. Yes, and pre landmines, it's a lot of exposition. It's a lot of stuff trying to get to the background of these guys. It's trying to set up the PTSD stuff heavy and mm-hmm. sometimes obnoxiously heavy at times. Yeah. Um, but definitely they're, they're trying to, to flesh out what they want to really hit in the back half. And, and to me, I also think Jonathan majors really pushes things forward for the film. Mm-hmm. So, and he hasn't come in for, for easily 35, 40 minutes. So, yeah. you know, and he a just lot like of appears stuff. like he's just there. <laughs> I know he just inserts himself. He's done. He's, like, he's in there. I'm sorry. I've been worried about my parent before. Now, granted, I've never been worried about a parent with PTSD. Right. But like worried to the point where like I'm a middle or high school teacher and I'm going to go on my own dime to Vietnam. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like that's amazing. Yeah, it is. It is. But I mean, it, obviously he, he, he felt a need to be there for his dad, even though he has had a shitty relationship by all accounts with his father. I thought know? that stuff worked a lot. And I thought the real oh, yeah. payoff for that is the end, of course. But like and the oh, betrayal, man. everything. It's so, you mm-hmm. know, multi-layered with that, that I appreciated really that is. a lot. But to get back to uh, the the Trump stuff real quick. I actually think because there's a there's a characterization of Trump supporter that is just basically disenfranchised somebody who's gone their whole life where they think I'm just going to get mine 
and and this is the person who's going to give it to me. These people who are like traditional politicians have done me wrong. So let I yeah, Trump is not a typical politician and we're seeing obviously the dividends of that now, which we will not get into, but the uh you know the but the appeal when he was voted in was a change of direction uh, a yeah, failure right and which he never did so the, but we'll see <laughs> uh you know he's got time uh but <laughs> <laughs> so, but you know but that is the identity a guy uh like Delroy Lindo's character like Paul uh will say and he literally did say uh, that whole dialogue at the table there where it was like, you know, blaming others for your problems, even though, you know, a lot of things are mental health. A lot of things are systemic problems that have nothing to do uh, with a lot of these things that have made you into who you are. Uh, even obviously the war stuff, PTSD, all these other things, uh, you know. Trump is not going to solve those things, and he's definitely not the person to do it, even if uh, you thought that. So it's weird. But, you know, but these are a lot of those people, especially people who are in industry workers like that have industries gone. A lot of those people gravitated to Trump to be like, solve my problems. And and why? I don't know. I mean, he could be charismatic in his speeches or whatever to those people. Uh, Didn't work on me. But, you know, it's it's something. But it worked on Paul. Right. Exactly. And it makes a lot of sense that that type of person would mm -hmm. kind of like lean into that to go. I mean, he's been lied to by 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 Johnson, by Nixon, by Reagan. So this is a man who served his country and. Essentially, his boss's 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 boss is has has been like so much for the the reasons as to why his life has been debilitating, right? right? You know, and you know we really understand how he feels and what I like to call the write on monologue. Yes, um, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, God, this is so good. I've, I've replayed it like three times. It is so so good. Like I I want to read the screenplay so bad because yeah. I will say, wow, it's not the strongest. There's definitely parts in the screenplay where, like, I just want to, like, just really, really kind of understand and be able to kind of, like, all right, let me put this, like, I, I want to see the text and kind of see it on screen and stuff like that. Right. Um, but, like, I got what the appeal was. Yeah. And I understand why folks in 2016 felt like, yo, we need, like, especially for those, like, I've grown up with conservatives and Republicans my entire life. Sure. They've evolved into something else now. Oh <laughs> they, yeah, they, you know it, it's it's and, and and I will say that they there may have been something inside of them that they that Trump that Trump unlocked. <laughs> sure. Uh, 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 oh, unfortunately, like, that got weaponized many years ago. Oh, before absolutely. Him, and the, yeah, yeah. And then I mean, and, and you can see it inside of Paul. And I will say, like his dynamic is like it's it's very unsettling. And in the first half of the film, like you were saying. It was it was more subtle, like you know, seeing like how he responded to like you know this uh, this kid with one leg, you know, coming and begging for change, yeah, and then, like you know um, the little chicken scene inside. Like I heard that that scene was entirely improv. Yeah, you know, I like, could buy a that loose structure yeah. of, like, on what it was, and you could tell because it it goes on for a while. It and does you, like cut back and forth and stuff like that, and, and it gets um, weirdly instantly aggressive. I don't again, I don't know if that's an yeah. edit to to make the scene shorter, um, but I could definitely True. see the escalation does seem to mm-hmm. jump. At one yeah. point, but it's still very effective. 
Yeah. And then, but also it's like, it's interesting in the way that I, I will say there was a little mustache twirl that John Renault's character was giving. Like, yeah. no, Tran, Tran had nothing to, or Tan had nothing to do with this and yeah. stuff like that. And yeah. I was like, okay, we don't have to like give, we don't have to be that expository. Okay, sure. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Although he is asked a straight question, but I it, True. totally, uh, you know, but there are a lot of things, weirdly enough, I almost could have used less of their journey in. And just more of like finding them, kind of discovering yeah. through the journey mm-hmm. in the jungle to like bring back some of the flashbacks or bring back some of the messages. What yeah. did you think of of Storm and Norman now? Because he plays such a big role in their minds. But mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, how he's used in this film, you could say he's underserved at times like that may or that he, you know, I've heard people say maybe he's you know, two one note or not much of a of of the figure that maybe Spike hoped it would be. So where do you fall on Storm and Norman in terms of his appeal to the the audience versus obviously his effect on Paul? Okay. Because that, that's a very like big difference, right? Because we understand the ghost that Paul is wrestling with and then we realize why at the end of the film. Right. I think for like as an audience member, I appreciate it a lot. And I will say that my frame of reference did you catch the last full measure that came out at the beginning of this year? Or it was either the beginning of this year or the end of last year? I did not, no. Samuel L. Jackson's in it. Uh, Winter Soldier's in it. <laughs> Winter, Winter Soldier's in it. Oh, we call him Bucky was... in my household, sir? No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sebastian Stan. Yeah, yeah. Um, James Cromwell's in it. Like, there are some like heavy hitters in this film, and it's it's kind of set, you know, based on the Vietnam War, about a um, a service person who was like this super heroic dude, right? But like because he was like he, they had to keep everything under clothes and he wasn't able to get like the like like a star or whatever. Yeah, it wasn't a great film. Really, really good performances, and I felt like does so. Does Spike want to paint Storm and Norman as being like like this you know heroic figure that nobody knew about, right? Like he's doing right. some like legendary shit because we don't see any legendary shit. I see him being a leader. Right. Um, and being a leader in a different sense of, hey, I understand that, you know, like, I mean, that scene where we have, you know, the troops fighting about the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Right. And they feel like we are in the wrong fight. Yeah. And what they want to do, like, at that point in time, Eddie, Melvin, Otis, and Paul, they want to kill their white brothers and sisters right now. Right. And he's like, no. Yeah. Like, we can't do that. Like, there's like, something big. So, like, I think that. Norm is straddling a unique line because in on the same conversation, they're about to rob <laughs> the money that <laughs> yeah. they've been sent to um the been sent to be able to give the government. Right. Um, but it's like, but then there's that con- that that conversation about reparations. I feel like he worked for me. But also at the same time, like I've I've heard people say, like, oh, but like I feel like he should have been doing more. I think that he was absolutely enough for what was serving those four men. Right. Um, that's fair. I will say at the end of the film. It did feel like that there was a little bit of like air left out of that balloon because I did one. I'm like, well, how did he go? Like, what? Like, how? And it was like something so like, oh, huh. I thought like he would have went out like a blazing glory or something. Sure, like that. right, like, yeah. He, Instead like, of he just gave a up act. his life for somebody, yeah. and it's like, oh, huh, yeah. Because I don't think that we saw enough images of him as a hero. I saw him as a leader. I didn't see him as a hero any different than what I would have saw Paul, Otis, Melvin, or Eddie for sure. And I think also, especially for that that MLK assassination moment. I almost wish you saw more of them in combat side by side with other white 
you know, soldiers yeah. to kind of get a sense of what the relationship there. was. Yeah. Like, because yeah. I feel like if we look at so many films, one, we don't get a lot of films. Like, it's weird that in this film, we understand that there's some like really scary numbers that, you know, if we look at the American population of Negro, you know, to, you know, to the majority, yet 30% of them were serving. In a lot of the films that we know about the Vietnam, those numbers ever bear out. You're lucky to get one or two black guys. Fair. Where technically it would have been completely the other way. Right. Right. Um, so the only time that we see them interact with any other white soldier in the past are the ones that just got taken out in the plane. Yeah. I mean, in the helicopter. Yeah. And they're, they're gone real quick. Sure. So yeah, I think you're right. If we would have kind of seen that like, oh, hey, you know, it's weird. Like in a military stance, we're in this together, right. but you're also a black guy. Yeah. So like, we're not in this together. Yeah. I mean, you see a lot of stuff where it's literally just them all the time. Mm-hmm. And you kind of almost need something to to counteract that you need some mm-hmm. you need at least one person <laughs> whether it was just literally one white soldier character yeah. that had something there to kind of go you know to be something to look at to be like yeah i'm gonna fucking kill you your people ima- like some yeah, kind imagine of yeah when they hear that radio and there's like the white guy who's like a radio guy or whatever right? yeah and he's just he doesn't know what to do yeah essentially they're looking at him like the blame like i need to take this out on exactly you yeah and like see, and then you know maybe Paul goes half cocked and wants to like yep. start fighting somebody, and then you would see Norm say, "Stop it." Yeah, exactly. Like, to me, that, that is incredibly. a way more powerful scene yeah. if you have something to work against. So yeah. this is the problem for me a little bit with Storm and Norman is that there could have been so much more behind the punches. What he's saying mm-hmm. is is perfect in tone for the film, and definitely serves uh, not only what happens to Paul, but also Spike's message of the film. But I think uh, some of the scenes are a little punchless. They're just kind of like, you know, you, it's something you could have read versus what meaning that it comes out of his mouth. Uh, mm-hmm. So, and and I don't know how you felt about, and be, you know, obviously for anyone who got to this part, we're obviously spoiling it for in some <laughs> in some general sense. But the 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 last kind of frames of Paul. Uh, where he has the you know the delusion the daydream of like interacting with Storm and Norman, did you feel that did enough for you to cut? Because it's kind of the last bits of Paul, which Paul is the main story here, and yet yeah. he's not the end of the film, so to speak. You know, so how did you feel how that played out? That that interaction. Do you think his catharsis? That he got what he wanted, like that. That's enough to kind of bookend the story of Paul. I actually, I really do, and I think that that part worked better for me than it did in you know in the beginning. Because ultimately, you know, the one thing that I wrote down, you know, coming from you know Norm's character is that he says war is about money, money is about war. Right. And I think a lot of the reasons that why they return, one, they want to be able to recover their fallen brothers, you know, um, remains to be able to bring it back home. But also they want to be able to get that money because they understand that that was something that was like a directive from their leader, right? Right. And ultimately, we think that the ghost that Paul is battling is the duty to be able to get his brother because he seems the most attached to, um, to Norm but also to be able to get the money and like what that means to be able to get that as well, like their own personal reparations, right? Right. But then we realize that when he makes a decision to separate from the group, which is a risky thing to do as a director, to be able to craft this story where you are separating everybody, right? Right. Um, I had no idea what was going to happen. 
And we see this man kind of spiral more into like, you know, these delusions. I mean, it's hot. He's, you know, he's, he's in the jungle. He's chopping stuff down. He has this great monologue and performance piece. And then we realize that as he's slowly going more and more to this descent, it's when he actually loses the money. He falls into the booby trap and the money's left up there. And he's like, I can't get this. Right. And then we realize that it really, the reconciliation that he was looking for wasn't to be able to get the money. It was to be able to forgive himself for an accident. Right. And he never even considered an accident. He just thought like it was a fault of him. Right. And when we see the scene and we flash back and then ultimately Norm comes to him in essentially this, you know, this hysterical state and gives him this hug and like, brother, I forgive you. Yeah. Like that is what he needed. Yeah. And that's like where he could be like completely content. I will say, I feel like I, I wish we then would not have gotten, I almost want to like Paul to kind of like just disappear in the wilderness. (laughs) I didn't necessarily need the, you know, the, um, the acapella, you know, um, Marvin Gaye song. Yeah. And then him being like, you know, completely like just riddled apart with, you know, with those bullets. Uh, this film is much more graphic than I ever thought it was going to be. Yeah. Like, it, no, it's it true. Nuts. Yeah. I mean, between yeah. the landmines, between that scene, between the shootout the archival, at the end. Yeah. The archival, the archival footage. I was so not ready for it. And I, I've seen some of those images before. Yeah. I've never seen them put together like the this. children did more oh to me. God. I mean, we're both fathers. I mean, that yeah. screwed me up uh, yeah. pretty badly on, especially on first watch. It, it catches you pretty harshly uh, at the time. But yeah, definitely. Even like uh, you know some of the older footage of like you know people setting themselves on fire in protests or any of those things are mm-hmm. very graphic. That he does not shy away. He doesn't pull yeah. quick. He he lays seen- on these things. The photograph of the Vietnamese man being shot in the head, because um, like one, I forgot. Like I swear, growing up, history was my favorite subject. But I feel like if you look in a textbook, like what I was taught in high school, or what the Vietnam War was, it's probably two and a half pages. Yep. Like, it, <laughs> yep. <laughs> it is insane to think that like there's so much that we like just weren't told. Yeah. Like, as a generation, and it's just like because obviously one mission wasn't accomplished. We did not quote unquote win. Yeah. Um, we were there. I forgot, like, oh, it wasn't just us versus them. There were some of them that were fighting with us, yes. fighting in protest of the war. And I think the most amazing thing that I never thought to think of, and Spike is so clever in having this in there. To us, we call it the Vietnam War. They don't call it that. No, they call they it, call the, it American, the American War. Yeah. And I'm like, shit. Yeah. My selfish ass never even considered it. Yeah. And like the damage that that like that does, and like their very point. No, the American War. Yeah. I'm like, yo. But like that that photograph of the man being shot, I've seen that so many times. I think I, I think I probably even saw it like in Watchmen, but I've never seen the video I think of that it. Might be true. I don't understand how blood does that. I, I'm sorry. That, that, <laughs> that, like, I thought it was fake. I like did they enhance it. I have that was that's that jarred me. Yeah. No, there are a lot of scenes like that. I will say I think we I think we we covered a lot of uh, this stuff uh, this far. What I want to kind of see is a couple of things going forward with what this movie is going to mean beyond now uh Mm -hmm. obviously uh i first want to touch on something that i i kind of saw you you say online a little bit and i kind of want you to expound on it we were talking a little bit before this film was part of the newly created black lives matter collection on netflix if you go on there now and i was wondering because we're dealing with a real movement here we're dealing with a lot of sensitive issues how do you feel about netflix as a newer studio do you think they do enough uh for africa like are they the more like the example to be uh for that or is it something do they at least 
represent the culture well as a studio to you or is this something to where you're just like this is nice but we have we have other things to deal with or is it part of both i don't know with them being a newer studio i can say this in the past several years i would say definitely since 2018 they have made a concerted effort into being a space not just for a bunch of different voices but definitely for black and brown voices right Mm -hmm. um i think i think the first big film and i i i the fact that it's weird. Somebody asked me like, "What makes like what makes a black film?" Right. Right. Um, like, does it does it just have to have like a you know a principal black lead, or does it does it matter like you know who's behind the camera, who's in front of the camera? Right. I think it's hit or miss. Right. I think the first critically acclaimed Netflix film was um, *Beast of No Nation*. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about in a supporting performance, kind of his, his face is on the you know, on the cover, or whatever. Sure. You got Idris. You have Idris Elba. Yes. Since then, I've seen a chronicle of they do not shy away from stories that other studios would not want to tackle. Right. Right. They don't want the backlash, quote unquote, um, that can come from that. Netflix plays by their own rules. They don't have to worry about that at all. Yeah. Um, cultivating this Black Lives Matters collection to some folks can seem like, oh, they're being opportunists. However, I've seen more in their action that they have done things like this years prior. Yeah. You know? um, They've done and, it for the LGBTQ community. Absolutely. They've done yeah. it, you know, definitely a lot of the trans stuff lately. Uh, yes. You know, so they, they always seem to be on the forefront of some of these issues. Absolutely. And I mean, granted, they are still a corporation. The corporation's yeah. bottom line is their is, is, is their dollar, right? Yeah. That's the color that they speak is green. Um, like I said, I still don't know how they get their green, but that's <laughs> for another conversation. Uh-huh. But no, I, I, I think their work is genuine. I mean, I, I've got folks who, um, who are affiliated with Strong Black Lead and seeing a lot of their videos and stuff like that, you know, on Facebook, like they are very intentional about cultivating spaces for those voices to be heard right um obviously when we talked about you know uncorked it was great to be able to have a different style of black film represented you know on that platform yeah that story is not being made by anyone else absolutely it's just not and and obviously we can't say that you know um that this film could be made by anybody else i mean but we also discussed that this was intended to be made by someone else well Um, not only that this is the only studio that made it nobody else wanted to make it yeah, so like, and so like that tells me something that they are not going to shy away. And there's a lot of like other properties that are you know that are that are coming. I mean, what look what they did with um with, with Dolomite is my name. Yeah, great. Yeah. Oh man, I re- I really wish that movie would have got more love. Um, but no, like I'll I'll clap it up to Netflix. Like you know, good job. Like and granted, they have a lot of quality. And I feel like with some of their films, there's more misses than hits. Yeah. Um, but I will say these past couple of years. These hits are really hitting for me. Yeah, I mean, just last year alone with Dolomite is my name, Marriage Story. While I didn't love the Irishman, I really, really did respect it. Yeah, right. Um, like that's great. Yeah, <laughs> you know, year before that you had Roma. Like Roma is one of the most boring movies I've ever seen, but it's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, I hear you. Yeah. Uh, so to me, I guess maybe you're tipping your hand because again, uh, I. As far as grades go, you have one of the higher grades I've seen uh, on mm-hmm. the net. I mean, uh, you gave it like a nine out of ten. I've seen places, yeah. and you know, I I think I saw you mention uh, one thing, kind of maybe bothered you is why you didn't give it a ten out of ten, like why it doesn't only. Really... So, well, what asked, for like, you why didn't... doesn't yeah. put it higher? 
Well, someone asked me, well, yo, Kobe, why don't you give it a five? Well, you know, because I, I guess they saw my letterbox review. Yeah, yeah, I right. Like, I, like it, I, like it, I like a 10-point like scale, right? A 10 out of 10 is perfect. Like, that's a perfect score. That means that there's nothing that can be changed. Sure. And there's only been a few films that I've given where it's just like, there's absolutely nothing I would change. I don't necessarily look at a film's length as being bothered. But there is fat in this film that I don't think is a detriment to it. Yeah. It just, because of it, it doesn't handle it as gracefully. And I will say this. I think my nine is a lot higher than probably like if I could easily see myself giving this a seven or an eight. Right. But the message and its timing is so strong that that's an element that I choose not to ignore. Yeah. Because think of, I'll get some shit for this. Think of like what the backlash was with Green Book. Yep. You separate the white savior complex and, and like the overtures that like that com- continue to like plague, you know, Hollywood and those types of films. Sure. In a vacuum, it is not a bad film. Like there are good performances. There's a strong script. Yep. Like it's a well-produced film. Right. Because it perpetuates so many of the problematic themes that we deal with real life in Hollywood, it knocks it down. Right. right? Like that's because that, well, and everything. Yeah, and the outside story of what actually exactly. happened in real Absolutely. life. Everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if the outside story and the themes that are bad for Hollywood, if that can knock a film down. Why can't those same things elevate a film? Fair. So this, right? So with what's going on in this world, the timing of this, how important the messages are and the themes and the commentary, what he's doing with it, that's why I can elevate this. But still, the lamb stuff, I can take that completely out of this movie. Yeah, it's it's kind of like yeah, too perfect, oh, it, too it, on the nose it, it to be make, like it, there. It does make it contrived. It makes it very contrived, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, the, I, I was not even, I thought that having them at that little, you know, you know, bar, I was like, okay, I'm not too sure where this is going. I get an over the shoulder of one of the, you know, Vietnamese men with the gun. Right. I'm like, okay, when are they going to catch up with them? And that was not who essentially caught up with them when they got to the minefield. Right. So little stuff like that. I love the performances, um, but I can't give it a 10. I've only given a 10 recently to Portrait of Lady on Fire, If Bill Street Could Talk, yeah. and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And those three films over the past Very two years, good films. they're just yeah. they're just undeniable to me. Like that, there's nothing absolutely like I just and it's one of those things. Like it's com- it's a complete gut thing. I'm right. like, oh, that's a perfect film. Oh, you know, like or, or forgive me, might as well. Loose with Calvin Harrison. Okay, yeah. yeah. I was just like, it, it just you know it, and when it happens, it's just gonna yeah. hit you instantly. Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm proud I'm proud of my nine. Yeah. No. Hey, uh, like I was saying, like you're on the on the high side for a lot of people, but there is definitely Oscar conversation uh, around this film, especially because it's the first kind of of its kind a little bit, uh, especially Mm -hmm. in terms of a name of a director. You know, we have some other things that maybe came out earlier in the year that you can point to to like. Yeah, maybe this might have some legs or whatever. Maybe something that played at Sundance, something that came out with big buzz. But usually from a, a, a smaller, you know, uh, uh, not a director with 30 years in the game. So yeah. this film is definitely getting it for Delroy. It's definitely getting it for possibly even picture and everything else. One of the things that happened, I believe, today. Was it today that yes, they pushed back today. the Oscars? Uh, so By two damn months. Yeah, by two months. And they pushed April- the date of when you have to submit a film or, or a film has to be released uh, yeah. two months as well. So you're talking the end of February versus the end of December, you know, end of the yeah. year. So and it was interesting. I forgot that. I thought the initial rule was that 
if a because of COVID, if a film was intending to have a theatrical release, it was eligible. Yeah. Like now the rule is no, no. any release like streaming is eligible for this year alone. Which yeah. I was like, oh great. Um, you know, unfortunately, the new rule of expanding to ten films being nominated um, for best picture doesn't kick into the following years. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, a ceremony, but right now, for what I've seen the past six months and. Gosh, I miss moving. To, I miss being in the movie theater. Like I was there three to five nights a week. Yeah, man. Um, this is one of the best films that I've seen this year that will be eligible for that ceremony. I don't. I, I there's. I mean, I, I you know look at some of the different you know review sites and stuff like that. It's rated quite high. I will say. Yeah, Metacritic's in, my, in the 80s, you know, which is a that, solid that's score. That's really high yeah. for, for for Metacritic. Um, you know, our friends over at Mike, Mike, and Oscar. They got this at a, <laughs> a B minus. So well, that's that's uh, low eighties. That's where Metacritic is. So that's true, you know. But like, you know, is that enough to win a Best Picture? I don't know. But like, honestly, I don't. The landscape is so weird to me right now. Like my general yeah. idea of what's coming out, I don't have it anymore. No, I know. So many things got pushed back or whatever, and a lot of things that got pushed back are now back in play because maybe something yeah. that got pushed back to March, they'll be like, oh, well, we'll push it back to late February just to have it mm-hmm. enter the conversation for the Oscars. You're going to see a lot of jumbling now that they know oh, where yeah. the deadline. January is not going to be a dumping ground anymore. No. <laughs> so and, it, it's it's. And what I would say is that unfortunately, a lot of summer films tend to get lost because you get that end of the year push uh, as far as yeah. the Oscar conversation, especially in the last few years, you see that September to December push, uh, especially mm-hmm. the last couple months. And now, because you're going to get a reshuffling uh, with that as well, is a June movie going to last? I mean, is is this movie dependent? <laughs> and I know this is a terrible way to phrase it, but is it dependent on how long the conversation lasts? Of kind of like the I Black think, Lives Matter stuff, the police brutality stuff, any of these things that are right in our face, uh, is is this? Are we gonna? I hope we don't forget wh- some of the things we saw or learned in COVID, in quarantine, in this time period when it comes to the Oscars. I hope they still recognize. It, is my point. I hope it's not no, dependent I, I, upon other factors. Yeah. It's def- I mean, one, having a film released in June was always something I could work against it for Oscar talks to begin with. Yes. I think this news of it being pushed back probably hurt it more than we like really think about it. Because now it's like, can this be a conversation starter 10 months from now? Yeah. Like, that's, that's going to be tough. Yeah. Um, but I think that Netflix is smart because it's up to them how they choose to campaign this movie. Yes. It's also going to be interesting to see what are they really going to. Because, like, one, they're not going to have any festival darlings that they're going to have to be able to peddle either. Right. You know, that's going to completely change this year. They mainly just may focus on this and make. Well, I'm trying to think of another big Netflix. So we got a few things working on. Mank is obviously a a big-time contender. They have some other contenders in the animation circles. But Mm -hmm. one thing that may do this, and this is dumb, I know this is dumb, going to come out of my mouth, So, but unfortunately, this is what people do. I'm not saying I will do this, but Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is coming out with Denzel Washington. So oh, you're, you're going to have a massive name in black cinema doing a film more towards the end of the year that might kind of steal a little bit from from the at least the spirit of this movie maybe in some or or it'll extend it in a different way it'll reframe it that i hope something like this movie doesn't get lost in the shuffle but 
You, that is something that might happen. There is a George Clooney yeah. coming out, uh, a movie coming out at the end of the year for Netflix. There's a there's a bunch of things that they're going to try to push. Uh, Hillbilly Elegy is one of those films uh, where that's a strong female-led cast uh, with... That's the one with Glenn Close, right? Yes, absolutely. And Amy Adams. So you got a couple of people oh, wow. trying to get first-time Oscars for people who have longer <laughs> careers. Amy Adams is not old, but she's definitely had many nominations. So she's starting to get yeah. in that weird zone of like, when is it? When is it going to happen? <laughs> um, and, but to be honest, you know, Spike Lee did just get recognized, but he's never won Best Picture, and neither is David Fincher. And you also, and Hillbilly Elegy is a Ron Howard film. He's won Best Picture before. So it, does that pedigree go? You have a lot of these type of things. You have a Charlie Kaufman film coming out. There's a, a bunch of people who have some pedigree that are going to move forward for at least their campaign season. Yeah. They're going to pick and I choose. I Netflix has Netflix is definitely, um, they're building out their roster pretty well yeah. with uh, having auteurs wanting to work with them. Yeah. Um, and they could. That's that. That is really interesting. And they could have had more. I mean, because D. Reese, who made such a great film uh, with Mudbound, Mudbound, that is also in the Black Lives Matter collection, um, you know, had a real dud in January and February. So you know, you could have had more. But you, you know, know, I skipped that. I skipped that movie so hard. It, <laughs> it is not good. It is not. That good. trailer was like. I swear. I'm like. I've never been so unsold by a movie, but by that trailer. Yeah. And I'm like, you got Anne Hathaway. You got Ben Affleck. Yep. Like, I don't understand. Man. And yet, I don't even think it's the worst Netflix film I watched to this date. So, Oh, no. It is it is definitely a fall from grace. <laughs> well, I didn't watch that, so I will believe you. We talked about that the last time. I don't fuck with Tyler Perry for the most part. I think I saw like the first Medea film, and I was like, fine, okay, we're good. Oh, no. I, I, I missed. I actually I have it in the, the uh, I will say, uh, a, a close second has got to be um, Last Crime. Last, last Days Crime. of American Crime. That's the one that's getting butchered, and it should be. Uh, and I think that's oh that's right now the reigning champ. Between that and actually fall for if you look at like the the side by side of the critics, it's pretty bad. Um, oh man! But yeah, hopefully we got we got some more stuff. We got a Charlize Theron movie in a few weeks. Like we can that's right. We can get what that. What is that Rock and Gal Gadot movie? Is that like pushed to next year? Which one? The Rock and Gal Gadot. In, oh in, yeah, uh, that's next year. I think. That's next year. Yeah, okay. at earliest. I mean, things production schedules get Shit. all screwed up. So, so yeah. So uh, that's what I wanted to kind of know for me. I, I does this film get lost? Uh, unfortunately, yeah, that does really to me. I thought it definitely took a hit with the yeah. the two months pushback uh, because certain movies that we thought were gonna be you know lost for for the conversation. I'll be doing everything back. in Colby's power to keep this in the top of the conversation. Hey, there okay? you like, go. I man. will. I will make sure to lead the bandwagon. Anybody's free to be able to hop on whenever they need to. Because come around, you know, December, January, your boy is going to be pushing real, real hard. I ain't got no vote or nothing like that. I got some pull, you know. <laughs> I, got, I got a little bit of following. You know, I'm going to see what I can do. <laughs> well, listen, I think anyone who has listened to you on this podcast or our previous episode together uh, should definitely join the bandwagon. Tell the people where to find Anything Colby Mack, uh, you're a great podcast. Uh, you're also, you're just a content creator, man. You are everywhere. You're a critic. You're, you know, you have the, the creative skills too. Like, so tell the people where they can find you and, and where they could jump on board. 
Yeah, well, first and foremost, thank you very much for having me back on. I would love to come on anytime that you have me. Yo, if you're not already, you can follow your boy. I'm on all the socials, at Kobe Told Me on Twitter and on Instagram. And I'm on Facebook, at Kobe Mac. When I'm in the mood to write, you can check out my words on my website, at KobeToldMe.com. And listen to me primarily when I'm not guesting on so many other pods. Host the Kobe Told Me podcast on all available major platforms. So when they ask you where you heard it from, you tell them Kobe Told Me. Awesome, man. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, you're probably one of the first guests that, even, even though we had technical difficulties to start, we still talked for like an hour and a half before we even started. Love it. It, was, Love it. it was great, man. It was great catching up. Uh, hope you're you're safe down in Atlanta area and enjoy uh, what we have left of quarantine. Hopefully not that much longer, though we said that back in March when we talked last. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but definitely, man, this was a blast. Thank you for coming on and we'll talk soon. Absolutely, man. Take it easy.